0: Well, today, as Jake read, we return to the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 10, which marks for us the beginning of the beginning of the end of the book. Daniel 10, 11, and 12, these three chapters fit together as a cohesive unit, which introduced Daniel's final vision. Specifically, chapters 11 and 12 get into that vision, but Daniel 10 breaks pattern with the rest of the book of Daniel. You see, normally in the book of Daniel, when he has a vision, the narrator, whether it's from the first person, Daniel himself, or someone else, just likes to jump straight into the vision, tell us what happened, what he saw, what's going on. But here in Daniel 10, as the Bible occasionally does, he plays a little bit of literary, which of these is not like the other, in order to catch our eye, provide emphasis, and give understanding. And so unlike the rest of the book, Daniel 10 actually tells us, rather than the vision itself, what happened before, what happened during, and what happened after Daniel's vision. To say it another way, the Spirit of God does not usually waste words. As such, when he gives Daniel a unique desire to dwell on the circumstances that the vision took place during, we ought to prepare our hearts to hear something specific going on. And so the Holy Spirit inspires biographical reflection around what happened during this vision. Next week, we'll be getting into Daniel 11 and looking at the vision itself. But for this week, we'll be looking at what took place while Daniel had the vision. And we're going to have sort of an old-school Baptist outline so we can just simplify this real easy. What is happening in this text, and where is the gospel? Those are the two things we're going to be looking at. So if you have your Bibles and notebooks, I suggest getting them ready, because we're going to look at this text and see five movements that take place. And if we understand those five movements, it'll help us understand what's going on in the text. Specifically, we'll see in verse 1, the date and description of the vision. In verses 2 through 4, the occasion of the vision. In verses 4 through 6, we're going to look at the man in linen, this mysterious figure. And we're going to rewind at that point to look at verse 1 and understand the briefest description of the vision that Daniel gives us in chapter 10. And then we'll move on to Daniel's reaction and how it affected him in verses 7 to 11, 15 through 17, and verse 19. So with those five pieces, we'll jump in, but let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this congregation, how we've already sung your word, we've already prayed your word, we've already read your word, and so now it falls to me to explain your word. So Lord, I pray that you quiet my heart, that the meditations of my heart throughout this week on this text, that the words of my mouth now would be honoring and your sight would be edifying to those who you have providentially gathered together here. Father, I pray that your gospel is clear in this text and that we are encouraged by this mysterious person who shows up to Daniel and the vision that he has. We ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, date and description of the vision. In verse 1, Daniel begins by telling us that this took place in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the third year of his reign. That can seem pretty innocuous, but this is a really important historical marker. You see, a few sermons back, Drew told us how Cyrus, when he conquered Babylon, established his supremacy and sent an edict throughout his land to allow the Jews to return home to Jerusalem, any who would decide to. This is recorded for us in the book of Ezra, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So before we actually unpack much of Daniel 10, let's make a few observations about Ezra here. Notice the reference to Jeremiah. If memory serves, Drew actually has already referenced both of these passages in preceding sermons. Ezra here is referring to Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 two passages written about 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. respectively. Which, just for those of you who aren't good with history, remember when you're heading towards Jesus, the numbers get smaller. So you count down to Jesus and then you count up from Jesus. Just keeping that in mind. Because Ezra 1 and Daniel 10 both take place in 539 B.C. and 536 B.C. Which means... Jeremiah wrote those words over 60 years prior to the events. 60 years prior, Jeremiah said that the people of God were going to go off into exile and 70 years afterwards, with 10 already gone, 70 years afterwards would go back up to Jerusalem. Jeremiah already predicted this, prophesied it. But quite frankly, that seems actually a little bit too easy for our God. So let's move the goalpost back a bit. Do you know where the first reference to Cyrus, chronologically speaking, is in the Bible? because it's not in the book of Daniel. It's not even in the history books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which are written after the exile. It's written in the book of Isaiah in chapters 45 and or 44 and 45. What does Isaiah say about Cyrus? Well, after prophesying to his people about the coming wrath of God for Israel's faithlessness, Isaiah says this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. I will cut down the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and the hoards in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name, I name you, though you do not know me. Did you catch what Isaiah just said? Cyrus shall fulfill God's purposes. Cyrus shall tell Jerusalem to be built and build a temple to God there. Cyrus will be used by God to subdue the power of many nations. Cyrus will disempower kings. Cyrus will know Yahweh is the God of Israel, but he will not know Yahweh personally. And Cyrus will work for the good of God's chosen people. We have seen that this is true in Daniel and in Ezra 1. But when did Isaiah write that? One commentator notes Isaiah was called a prophet, or was Isaiah was called to prophetic ministry in the, in the year King Uzziah died. Scholars compute that this year is 739 BC. His ministry extended some 60 years though to the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. According to the tradition, Isaiah died a martyr's death in 680 BC which means if Isaiah 44 and 45 were the last things that Isaiah wrote before he died, which they were not, by the way, they would have been written 680 B.C. That's 141 years prior to Ezra 1, prior to Cyrus coming to the throne. 141 years. For historical reference, for those of you who are good with uh, events rather than numbers, That would be like somebody writing the Declaration of Independence and then prophesying World War I. That is 141 years between those two. Or for us today, it would be like predicting the President of the United States in 35 election cycles from now. Nobody could do that. We can't even predict what will take place next year. 2022, what will that hold? I don't know. There is no way with this sort of accuracy that you could get this prediction right unless you predicted it through God. Unless it was God's power and God's knowledge which came through your lips. So that might be sort of a long digression from our text in Daniel 10, and I apologize for that. Uh, In fact, we better move back to Daniel 10 before I get up on my soapbox and we have two sermons this morning. Uh, Ezra 2, though, before we go back, 64 tells us that approximately 42,360 people took up Cyrus's offer. So approximately 42,000 people go back to the promised land. Yet, two years after returning to Jerusalem, they have become disappointed. A commentator notes that they had come back with high hopes of returning to the promised land and rebuilding God's temple. After all, that's why... Cyrus sent them back, but the Samaritans who lived there opposed their plans and did everything possible to make their lives miserable. This same commentator goes on to point out, we read in Ezra 4.4, that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, thus the work ground to a halt. This news would certainly have reached Daniel and plays into what we see next. In Daniel 10, verses 2 through 4, we see that Daniel is mourning, and he shows this in fasting. He keeps himself from certain delicacies, meats, and things like that. And this mourning period lasts three weeks during the first month. Commentators note that this fast, therefore, would have taken place during and extended beyond the celebration of Passover, which is usually accompanied not by fasts, but by feasts. It suggests, then, two things. That Daniel's mourning is related to the state of Jerusalem and the frustration of the work desired to be done there. Daniel, in awareness of what is taking place with his brothers away from where he is, his brothers who have returned home, fasts with them for solidarity. But also the text implies that Daniel fasts in light of what he saw in Daniel chapter 8. That the temple would be rebuilt, but then shut down, and religious observance of the Jewish traditions would be cut off. That people would not be able to celebrate Passover in the future. And Daniel then fasts in solidarity with the future Israelites as well. And in this time of religious mourning, mourning and fasting for God's name and God's city and God's temple and God's people, present and future, the events of our chapter take place. What are those events? Well, first we have the arrival of the man in linen, verses 4 through 7. On the bank of the Tigris, Daniel looks up and sees someone, a majestic figure described the following ways. A man clothed in linen, which, by the way, are usually the garments of priests, according to Leviticus 16.4, and often what people describe angels as appearing to be clothed in. Like, for example, in Ezekiel 9.2. He also has a belt of fine gold, symbolic of royalty and wealth. And he has a body like beryl, which if you don't know what that is, it's okay. I had to look it up as well. It is a yellow gemstone, which would give the impression that he is brightly colored. Possibly that light is emanating from him. Which buttressed by images like having a face like lightning which takes place again and again in the scriptures and is regularly a picture of otherworldly glory. So often people are described as having a face like lightning in heavenly scenes. Further, his eyes are like torches, which throughout the scriptures is associated with burning through things, or seeing through all things. In effect, when this man in linen looks, he sees straight to the heart of the matter. And as well, his arms and legs gleam which to gleam means to reflect and capture light. Again, his arms and legs are described as gleaming like bronze. Bronze is a symbol of strength and steadfastness. And his words ring out like a multitude, suggesting of authority. In verse 7, we're told that his presence causes the men who were with Daniel to tremble greatly, such that they fled and hid themselves. You see, in sum, what we see here is this man is an embodiment of authority and power. Everything about him signals that he is in charge. And so what's the vision that Daniel has associated with this man's arrival? Well, let's go back to verse 1 for a second. The other events of this time of mourning and fasting, uh, we get a lot unpacked, but this vision actually we just get a little bit. We read, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So let's note a few things taking place here in verse 1. We see that it is a true word. This comports with Daniel's preceding visions. Normally, when Daniel has a vision or when Daniel interacts with something, something takes place in Daniel's experience that confirms an early part of the vision, such that we can know the latter part of the vision will be true also. Well, here we have something similar taking place as the text references the Babylonian name Belteshazzar. For those of you who haven't been with us this whole time, we should note that Daniel is captured by the Babylonian Empire and taken off into captivity. But that empire, which renamed him from Daniel to Belteshazzar, has subsequently Collapsed and fallen as Cyrus the king of Persia has overtaken it So why then are they referring to Daniel by a name of an empire that has gone past? In fact our one narrative chapter dealing with the Persian Empire makes no reference to the name Belteshazzar and King Cyrus actually refers to him as Daniel When the Babylonian Empire passed away, so does the Babylonian name. Why does it appear in this text? well because it wants us to call to mind previous chapters in which this name has been used. In Daniel 1, verse 7, or Daniel 2, verse 26, or Daniel 4, 8, 9, 4, 18, 4, 19, and five twelve, Because in these verses and in these chapters, Daniel is described as one in whom the spirit of the holy gods is, and one for whom no mystery is too difficult. So we have the use of the name Belshazzar. And it's paired with the phrase that Daniel understood the vision. He understood the word, which would be different from Daniel chapter 8, where he needs an angelic messenger to explain it to him, and the name Belteshazzar does not appear. As well, I think, the use of the name Belteshazzar attaches us to Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, in which Daniel confesses the following. When having to interpret the vision... Or dream of King Nebuchadnezzar he says there's no one on earth there's no magician there's no Chaldean there's no dream interpreter who can tell you what you saw in your head nobody can except there is a God in heaven who has access to your internal thoughts and he makes known to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's vision so that he can both recite it to him and interpret it for him In other words, the the use of this Babylonian name is intended to prompt for us Daniel's uncanny ability to understand these things, but to understand that this ability comes not from Daniel and doesn't flow from Daniel as if he's the source, but rather flows through Daniel from God. It is God who gives him understanding. Now that being said, usually the understanding is intended to build hope. But Daniel doesn't seem very hopeful in this text. Look what takes place with him. Daniel's immediate reaction to the vision is seen in verse 7 through 11. Contrary to expectations, by the way, we often expect that if you were to uh, receive an angelic messenger, if you were to hear audibly the word of God, uh, if you were to have this sort of revelation, we would expect hope to well up inside you, encouragement, things like that. But contrary to the expectation of our culture, Daniel seems to have a negative visceral reaction to God's confrontation with him. And in fact, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel's reaction seems proportionally negative depending on the clarity of the vision. That means the easier something is for Daniel to understand, the more messed up he is in its aftermath. Think, for example, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 28 which after following a complex vision, but one which Daniel uh, is able to grapple with a little bit, we read, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel sees this vision. He has it interpreted for him. Still a little bit clear or still a little bit unclear. And Daniel says his color changed. He became pale. and He was greatly troubled. In the next chapter, in Daniel 8.27, after a very unsettling vision that's explained to him so he gets it, we read, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So here, though the angel explains it to him, and he still doesn't quite get it, so a little bit more clarity, but he's laid up in bed, sick. The vision he receives in Daniel chapter 11, though, is crystal clear. There's no metaphors and images clouding it out. It's straightforward. And what happens to Daniel? Well, Daniel 10 and the rest of the chapter reads like a picture of a man who has had the wind, or maybe more accurately, the spirit knocked out of him. Verse 8 records that no strength was left in him. Verse 9 says he fell on his face. Again, verse 9 says he fell into a deep sleep with his face on the ground. Daniel notes that a hand had to lift him up and set him on his hands and knees, where in that position he trembled. Then a voice speaks to him and encourages him to stand, and he is able to get to his feet. But in that position he trembles too in verses 10 and 11. Verse 15 then records that he's mute and unable to speak. And when he is strengthened, such that he can open his mouth and words can come out, he speaks of how his strength has left him. And Daniel 10, 17 records, How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. See that? He has had the wind knocked out of him. Daniel's struggles only subside when he is strengthened by this majestic figure in linen. So let me make two points of application here, which normally I would save to the end. But, for the sake of the teachable moment, we should point out that hearing from God and encountering God's messenger is not usually a pleasant experience. You see, this can be true for us today, not just for Daniel encountering the man in linen. I mean, who among us has not known the real difficulty and the real struggles of reading the Bible and having the Holy Spirit use it as a mirror to show us our sin? To show us our shortcomings. You see, when we see through the scriptures clearly, we struggle most fervently. In honesty, brothers and sisters, it's likely one of the reasons why we take care to insulate ourselves with busyness, making sure that we can't actually encounter the cold shock of the Word of God. I mean, when was the last time you let God speak to you in the scriptures? When was the last time you prayed and asked God to prepare your heart to hear His Spirit in the words of a sermon? Or let me reframe it. How frequently do you find yourself in prayer and confession after your time of reading the Scriptures? How frequently do you meditate on God's message for you in a pastor's sermon versus thinking about how that sermon would be great for your son or your daughter, your brother, your sister, your parent or your friend, your wife or your husband? Encountering God's word, encountering God in his word, can and should level you, destabilize you, knock you off balance, take the wind out of you. But neither Daniel nor any disciple of Jesus is ever left to him or herself to pick up the pieces after such an encounter. Daniel, throughout the scriptures, always finds that God gives him the resources, whether an angel from heaven or the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Daniel always has divinely administered recovery and has always helped to respond to God's revelation. So too with us. We worry that we'll get knocked down or knocked out by the word. But you're filled with the Spirit if you follow Christ. You have what you need in God to recover from a real, authentic encounter with His Word. Back to our text in the last issue of Exposition to look at, which leads us into difficult territory for a church like ours. You see, it encounters the topics of angels and demons. And there is much to say on this topic, and quite frankly, I just simply do not have time to do it justice. So let me just ask that we all allow the words of Christian philosopher and theologian C.S. Lewis to chasten us away from two extremes when we think about these things. In the preface to the book Screwtape Letters, Lewis writes the following. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is, to believe in their, or one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. The materialist and the magician, the same delight. You see, the demons want us to either focus too much on them or to focus not at all. The scriptures, however, want us to encounter their reality, but appropriate it into the proper place. So that having been said, it's worth reading our section or this particular section in verses 20 and 21 again. It begins, then he said, and real quick, we have to pause actually. Because when you read that, you have to remember something. You have to remember that the he in this saying is a human-like figure hovering above a river, dressed in priestly garments, wearing a belt of gold with an enviable tan, a face-like staring into a lightning strike, eyes that burn through you if you make eye contact with them, arms and legs of such immense strength that they are terrifying, and when he speaks, it sounds like a stadium of people shouting at you. That's the he, just so we're clear. Then he said... Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, that there is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. I'm going to encroach on my text for next week and seep into chapters 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. So let's try and get a handle on what was just said here. The first thing that takes place is Daniel is asked, do you know why I've come to you? Well, we actually get the answer to that in 1021 and 11.2, where it says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Now I will show you the truth. This angel or this character has appeared in order to tell Daniel what is true, particularly what is true about the future. Second, this figure is in a metaphysical conflict with a demonic counterpart associated with the empire of Persia. In honesty, I reached this part in my sermon, stared at my screen for a little bit, and I thought, what in the world do you say to people about that text? And so I sat staring as minutes passed, And then I realized, you know, it's actually pretty easy. This is one of the beauties of preaching expositionally through the Bible, is I would avoid something like this, given the chance. But if this is my job, let me just say what I see here. This text first points out that there is a spiritual reality beyond the physical. And we, if we are readers of the book of Ephesians, should not be surprised by this. After all, Ephesians contains these verses in chapter 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and strength strength in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we see that Paul believed in these demonic realities as well. Further, this text reveals that it is not only individuals that contend with spiritual powers, but entire nations might be affected by spiritual forces. This as well should not be a novel idea for us if we have read 1 Peter or the book of Revelation. Both books frequently make reference to the Babylonian Empire, but not as a past fallen thing, but a present reality. You see, they look to this historical type, Babylon, as a stand-in for all pagan cities. Pagan cities which will oppose Christ and his people and have a spirit of animosity towards the church. And so we see then that there are spiritual forces of darkness inhabiting cities, inhabiting empires, fighting against God and his purposes. And finally, the text reveals that God has provided for his people in the midst of these spiritual battles. He has provided a revelation. Think of the fact that God sent a messenger, that messenger was intercepted, but God sent somebody else, Michael, to contend with the prince of Persia, such that the messenger could still reach Daniel, could still give him the revelation. Well, so too for us Christians, he has preserved his word. We have his revelation which he has provided for us to strengthen us and encourage us in the midst of spiritual battles. As well, he's provided a champion. The text calls Michael the one fighting for Israel. So he's not just fighting against Persia. He's not just fighting against spiritual forces, but he's fighting for us. He is our champion. That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. However, we can draw out of Michael that he has done more than just sent a champion but has provided victory and even ultimate victory. You see, the messenger points not primarily to Michael, but primarily to Christ. In fact, consider Revelation 1, 13-16. This is the first picture that the Apostle John gives us of Jesus in the book of Revelation. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe, With a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Notice the similarities here with the text we read in Daniel. In these two texts, we would see that we have a man clothed in white in both of them. We wouldn't be surprised if John recorded in Revelation 1 that this man, that Jesus he encounters, was clothed in linen. We see a golden sash as opposed to a golden belt, but similar purposes. We see the same description of his face instead of staring into a lightning strike, you're staring into the face of the sun. We see references to his legs being like burnished bronze, which would be the same sort of thing taking place in Daniel 10. And we see his voice, when he speaks, sounds like rushing waters, which would be the loud, authoritative volume similar to a stadium of people. In fact, the descriptions are so close, it's fair to call them nearly identical, and I think it is fair to say, that is almost inconceivable that John, writing Revelation, in which he quotes the book of Daniel numerous times, does not intend for us to read that description of Jesus and think of the man in linen. In fact, I would say it's a definite possibility, if not a high likelihood, that this man over the river, this man who strengthens, This man who speaks, this man who has brought the revelation, is the pre incarnate Christ. Daniel 10 tells us that God's angelic warriors, like Michael and like this majestic figure here in linen, are in contention with demonic powers for God's people. And they are winning. Did you catch that? In verse 20, We see that the Prince of Greece is coming, which implies, by the way, that the Prince of Persia has been defeated. He has passed away, whether temporarily or finally. This, too, should not be a surprise to us, since we've been, prior to the book of Daniel, if you were with us, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, in which, on a regular basis these spiritual forces of darkness, these princes over various lands, collapse in fear and trembling at the feet of Jesus, begging to not be destroyed. You see, Michael might win some victories, but Christ has won the war, and in him we have our ultimate champion and our ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death. And in fact... That leads me into pointing out one more thing about this text. Where is the gospel in Daniel chapter 10? Well, if you're paying careful attention, I've actually skipped over a couple of verses here, which are pretty important for us today. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and Of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Let's take a few minutes to consider the words that strengthened Daniel. Because we have to remember, Daniel is not doing well at this point. And I'm actually willing to bet that there's a particular reason for that. Studying this passage, many commentators point out how Daniel, at the beginning of this passage, we're told is fasting. And so he hasn't had wine, he hasn't had meat. And so they say, well, you know, he passes out, and it's probably because, you know, he's on a high-carb, low-protein diet. (laughs) I'm willing to bet it's at least slightly more theological than that. You see, the Bible is full of a handful of occasions in which angels interact with humanity in direct, clear, and comprehensible ways. And in the vast majority, if not all of those occurrences, the encounter does not seem pleasant for the humans involved, no matter how saintly we think of them today. I believe Daniel is struggling because he is a sinner in the presence of a celestial soldier who comes and goes from the very presence of God himself. This seems to me to make sense of how Daniel reacts and how Isaiah and how Mary and Zechariah all react when they encounter angels. Ironically, of those, Mary, a teenage girl, seems the most okay with it, and yet the text still admits she sought to discern what kind of greeting this was, which is another way of saying she's trying to figure out if he's going to kill her. You see, encounters with angels usually bring varying amount of fear, Yet, in the book of Revelation, we would see that the saints never described as any of the most glorified people we would lift up in Scripture, the Marys, the Pauls, the Davids. Yet, today, stand in the presence of angels and they sing God's praises, cooperating in worship with them. What's the difference? Well, the saints in heaven are free of their sins, but those on earth still struggle. And so when the celestial warrior appears to you, you might seek to discern what kind of greeting he brings. So that makes it rather odd, then, that this sinner, Daniel, is told the following, you are greatly loved, you should fear not, peace should be with you, and be strong and courageous. How on earth can Daniel, a sinner, be greatly loved by God? The scripture makes it clear again and again that God hates sin, and sinners hate him in return. Psalm 4, 4, 3, or Psalm 5, 4-5 through 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Other scriptures go on to use military language to describe the animosity and opposition of sinners to God. Sinners are God's enemies. And who are sinners? Romans three ten through 19. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone is a sinner. Which is why Romans goes on to tell us that the word of God stops every mouth. Because no one does good, all have turned away, no one seeks God, and no one is righteous before the law. Then how on earth can Daniel be told, Fear not? God must punish sin. Thus, Colossians 3 tells us that whatever is earthly in us, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I bet you, like Daniel, can see some of those things inside yourself. So how can Daniel then have peace when what is in him provokes the wrath of God? And he stands in the presence of a celestial warrior. Romans 2 tells us this in verses 5 through 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Goes on to say, he will give eternal life to some, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Or how or where can Daniel then find strength in the face of a guilty verdict before a God who says in Deuteronomy 32:35? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. No wonder Daniel faints. No wonder he trembles. No wonder he struggles to stand. And no wonder he finds himself speechless in the presence of the man in linen. Where will he find strength to speak? Where will he have strength to act? How is it that he can even live? And yet he does live. And he is strengthened. And he does gain courage because he can have peace with God, and so he needs not fear. Because God loves him. How is that even possible? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, by the way, for those of you not good with big words, is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. Opening the possibility to move from disfavor to favor. Goes on, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be both just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. Or 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest in us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have love. God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, here's that word again, propitiation for our sins. Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected by love. Daniel is loved because God has overlooked his sins, says Romans. And he has overlooked them because he can look above Daniel's head to see Christ hanging on a cross. Such a view of history makes sense when we see Daniel as a whole in this book. Such a view of history can make sense for God would have had to move and maneuver people and places and events big and small, important and unimaginably finite, world-changing and utterly miss- missable in order to guarantee that Jesus could be sacrificed for sins. Without the cross of Christ, Daniel is not standing before his strengthener, but his executioner. And so, too, we stand. As God looked forward in time, overlooking Daniel's sins, looking to the cross, so he looks back in time when we sin. The cross has covered sins, past, present, and future, for all who believe in Christ and confess his rightful, that he has rightfully purchased us. And lordship over us and our lives there's a lot of people I don't know in here but even for those of you that do that I do know I don't know where you come from today and so I want to address two particular groups of people I don't even know if they are in here but someone in here I say this again not with prophetic awareness but rather provocation from the scriptures. Someone in here might have come to check out this Christian thing. They felt like coming to church for some reason. They felt awkward this entire time. But they have not associated themselves with Christ. If you're in here, you haven't placed your trust in him, asked him to propitiate God's wrath against you and against your sin. I would simply ask you, if you're here to consider that the Bible states clearly as I did as I read moments ago that before God you are a sinner incapable of meeting his extraordinary and yet justified qualifications and if you stay in your sins he will give you justice for them I would like to offer to you then That you ask Christ to take your sins. That you ask the blood of Christ pouring out of the cross to cover them. That you ask Christ to be a substitute in his death for yours. And I ask you to consider then that you would owe him allegiance. Your life would have been purchased. Someone else in here might be thinking of themselves as a Christian, but they have not been walking with Christ actively. They do not really think of themselves as all that bad. And I want to submit to you, if you're in here, that the Bible is crystal clear that any who want to be saved by Christ must follow him. In fact, let me simply quote Christ himself, Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Brothers and sisters, are you carrying your cross? Or are you seeking to preserve your life, your autonomy, your wants, your desires? Thinking that you can be saved without being surrendered. Do not be deceived. Daniel, in spite of all his work, all his wisdom, would have faced death in front of this figure if it were not that he had placed his trust in God's true and for him future king. You see, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 33 For what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's he talking about? Prophets? Who stopped the mouths of lions? Who might that be? Vaguely rings a bell of a man named Daniel in a pit. And the Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, since we, have, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.